Welcome to Skim This. Results from the midterm elections are in, and the balance of power in Congress is basically an even split. We're breaking down the final votes, along with the week's other major headlines. From growing protests in Iran to a highly anticipated rocket launch here in the US. Also on the show, we're getting into the collapse of FTX, one of the world's leading crypto exchanges. This story is a made-for-TV drama with major real-world implications. They were literally trading with billions of dollars worth of customer funds from FTX. That's, first of all, illegal, and second of all, just really wrong. And finally, have you ever been asked, why are you still single? Or when are you having kids at a family gathering? Us too. So we're talking to an expert about how to set boundaries that'll finally make you feel like you're not stuck at the kids' table. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, We're going to begin, though, with a major shift in power on Capitol Hill. CBS News can now project the Republican Party has indeed secured the 218 seats needed to win the majority in the House, even though a number of races still have not been called yet. The dust has finally settled after the midterm elections last week. And we've now got an idea about what the balance of power in Congress will look like. On Wednesday night, House Republicans secured the final seat they needed to win the majority in that chamber of Congress. Now, the GOP will be able to veto legislation and hinder President Biden's agenda for the next two years. House Republicans will also be able to launch investigations into the Biden administration. Though we should point out, a handful of House races still haven't been decided. So the size of the GOP's majority is still TBD. This also means House leadership is getting a shakeup as well. Today, current House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced she's passing the torch to the next generation of Democratic leaders on the House floor. And current GOP minority leader Kevin McCarthy was nominated this week to step into the Speaker role for the next session of Congress. Over in the Senate, Democrats held onto the majority after clinching two tight races in Nevada and Arizona. Now, Democrats will have at least 50 seats in the Senate, plus a tie-breaking vote from VP Kamala Harris. And there's still one Senate seat that's undecided. Georgia is holding a special runoff election on December 6 for the race between Republican Herschel Walker and Democrat Raphael Warnock, since neither candidate secured 50% of the vote on Election Day. So that's how things shook out in Congress. But some people, like former President Donald Trump, have their eye on the next presidential election. On Tuesday night, he announced he's making a run for the White House yet again. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. But after the outcome of the midterms, not everyone in his party is excited about the announcement. Given that multiple Trump-backed candidates lost their midterm elections, Some GOP members are concerned Trump might not have the magic touch, and in fact that he might have the opposite effect, pushing voters away. So some members of the GOP have been urging him not to run, 
while others are saying we should keep our options open. For our next headline, we're going to Iran, where protests in the country have persisted for about two months. Yesterday marked two months since protests broke out over the death of Masa Amini, a woman who died in custody after being held by Iran's morality police for not wearing a hijab in public. That initial outcry has turned into nonstop nationwide protests against the Islamic regime. At least 300 people have been killed since they started, and thousands have been detained. And this week, the Iranian government's response escalated as it issued death sentences to five protesters. But you might have seen a post on social media that claimed 15,000 protesters were being sentenced to death. So let's clear the noise and understand the facts here. Last week, Newsweek dropped a story which said that the majority of Iran's parliament voted to execute protesters in custody. And that made its way to Instagram in the form of an infographic you might have seen on your feeds. It reads, Iran sentences 15,000 protesters to death. But here's the thing. Iranian lawmakers didn't actually hold a vote. They sent an open letter to the country's judiciary, stating that protesters who waged war against the state should be detained and punished harshly in the shortest possible time. The reason they had to send a letter is because the judiciary ultimately decides the fate of protesters who are detained. And that's what sounded the alarm bells for protesters and human rights groups. An estimated 15,000 protesters have been arrested, and many of them are detained for actions that carry the death penalty as a potential punishment. Plus, considering that Iran has one of the highest execution rates in the world, according to Amnesty International, it's no surprise that Iranians and the international community feared the worst. Instagram has since applied a false information warning on posts spreading that message. But we should note, this doesn't take away from the fact that five protesters were sentenced to death this week, and that the Iranian regime is oppressive and violent towards dissidents. Not to mention, experts think more death sentences for protesters could be on the way. Without an end in sight, the United Nations is holding an emergency session next week, where leaders will address the human rights situation in Iran. And for our final headline. Stage engine start. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. We're talking about news that's out of this world, literally. And liftoff of Artemis One. We rise together, back to the moon and beyond. Early Wednesday morning, NASA successfully sent the world's most powerful rocket on an unmanned journey to the moon in a mission dubbed Artemis One. Everyone from NASA rocket scientists to amateur astronomers celebrated the launch. The rocket attempted to take off twice already, but faced delays thanks to technical difficulties. It also took a lot of time and money to put this thing together. We're talking about over a decade of work plus a hefty price tag of $40 billion. Talk about a shiny new toy. The launch was also a historic one. Artemis One is just one part of a multi-year program intended to bring astronauts back to the moon and to Mars for exploration. That's a pretty big deal, considering the last time humans set foot on the moon was during the Apollo program in the early 70s. And who knows what we'll find up there? 
Maybe this rocket will take us to infinity and beyond. The crypto world is facing a reckoning after one of the world's largest crypto exchanges, FTX, had to file for bankruptcy last week. Another massive news story crossing this week. Cryptocurrency exchange FTX filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It's the latest cryptocurrency crash plunged into chaos with the major collapse of a key player. And it's not just big companies, but real people losing a lot of money. How much of this is a red flag for the space overall? There's no regulatory oversight. $32 billion, billion dollars just vanished in a matter of days. If you're thinking WTF happened to FTX, stick with us for a second. This story involves a 30-year-old founder, a sketchy hedge fund, a penthouse in the Bahamas, multiple investigations, and $32 billion in value lost virtually overnight. Sounds like a movie, right? Well, as we wait for the eventual Netflix documentary to come out about FTX, we wanted to break down what we know so far with someone who's right in the middle of it. I'm Anita Ramaswamy. I am a senior crypto and fintech reporter at TechCrunch. So I have been covering crypto companies, crypto startups, venture capital, and all of that stuff for a while now. And your beat has definitely gotten a lot more interesting in the past few weeks. Yeah. I mean, this FTX story is so nuts. I want to back up and just start from the beginning can you tell us what FTX is, or I guess was, and then who SBF is? And I'm dealing with a lot of three-letter acronyms here. Yeah, crypto people love the acronyms. It's <laughs> ridiculous. But um, of course, so FTX was one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world as of you know a couple of weeks ago. A lot of people used FTX to trade crypto, like a lot of retail investors, a lot of institutions. It was just super popular. Yeah, like when I think of FTX, I actually think of the celebrity commercials like Tom Brady. I'm getting into crypto with FTX. You in? Or Larry nice. David. It's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. I believe it was number three in terms of volume overall. So that's FTX. SBF is their founder and CEO. He's co-founder, Sam Bankman fried and he was just seen as really like this poster child for the industry. They call him the JP Morgan of crypto. <laughs> the Michael Jordan of crypto, if you will. <laughs> I believe he was in his late 20s and he was seen as this like boy genius. You know, he'd always wear shorts. He drives a Toyota Corolla to FTX's offices in the Bahamas. He lives with 10 roommates. He'd like sleep in his office. Sometimes sleeps under his desk on a beanbag chair. He was really involved with like lobbying with regulators in D.C. And so that's why he got a lot of acclaim throughout the U.S. and globally. So FTX is this crypto exchange, and it turns out there was a lot going on behind the scenes besides just trading cryptocurrency, including improper use of funds. Can you talk to me about what we've learned about FTX in the past few days that caused this bankruptcy and precipitous decline? Sure. So I think the first thing that I want to preface this with is like, improper use of customer funds, it's really bad. Like that's crossing a huge line and it takes intent to do that. So what happened here was that FTX had a sister company called Alameda Research, which was basically a trading firm that SBF founded. And Alameda 
ended up borrowing billions of dollars worth of customer funds from FTX. And they had to give collateral. Like when you take on debt, you have to give put up some sort of collateral. So what they put up as collateral is this token called FTT, which is a token that FTX basically just made up. Like it doesn't have any underlying value. Like normally you would have collateral as cash, right? Or some assets that have some sort of real value. But what ended up happening here was that tons of customers wanted to withdraw their funds because of some tweets from the CEO of a rival exchange that sort of cast some doubt on the whole situation. So customers were like, okay, I'm going to pull out my money. And when it came time for them to actually pull out their money, FTX didn't have real money to give customers for their withdrawals. All they had was this useless token that's like now worthless because their entire brand has been tarnished. So people are trying to withdraw their money. They can't. FTX has to file for bankruptcy. What happens then? Nobody really knows. And that's the scary part. I think with all of these crypto scandals we've seen, I mean, getting your funds recovered is a really lengthy process. I mean, for a lot of these issues, this is going to be one of the most complicated bankruptcies in American history is what I've been hearing. It's not like you can just take that money back. It was tokens and they didn't have any underlying value. So it, it will have to like go through bankruptcy proceedings. I think the original idea was SBF wanted another exchange to buy FTX and bail them out. So that was his first plan. Didn't work. Cryptocurrency firm Binance backed out of plans to buy its rival FTX. Right now, he's rumored to be fundraising in the market and trying to find some investors who can bail him out. But it's still TBD whether that'll actually happen. I think a lot of people have been focusing on who this scandal hurts when it comes to like the credibility of a large VC firm like a Sequoia or something. <laughs> yeah, but I'm have. like, who does this scandal hurt when it comes to regular people? First of all, there are a lot of institutional investors that manage money for everyday people who lost money on this. But I think more so than that, it's the entire crypto ecosystem. I mean, anyone who had any sort of exposure to crypto, FTX was such a trusted name and such a trusted brand. It's sort of like if you can't trust Sam Bankman-Fried, then who can you trust in this industry? Like, I would say that was sort of the impact of it because customers did end up losing money. And now a lot of people who had their money tied up in FTX don't know when they're going to see those funds again. This year or, and last year, I guess, were the years of like the scammer TV shows around Theranos and WeWork. And I watched them all. <laughs> I watched them all. Are those comparisons now between FTX and like a Theranos or an Enron or a Lehman Brothers, are those comparisons you agree with? And like, where is FTX going to sit in American scam culture when we look back on this? I agree with those comparisons because at the end of the day, Sam Bankman-Fried was a billionaire. He was running a multi-billion dollar business. He had an accountability and a responsibility to be transparent with the crypto community. And he wasn't. He literally misused customer funds. It's definitely a scam. It's definitely a lie. And I think that people are going to see it that way. And this is where, you know, I, I feel a little, you know, upset about the whole thing is like, I think it's not only obviously customers who are going to be hurt, but it's also people who are building legitimate products in the crypto space and who are actually working on like valid projects that are going to improve things that are now going to be undermined. I was going to ask you actually about what this scandal has exposed about crypto. And to me, there are a few components here that have really gotten me thinking. One is, it seems like a lot of people actually just don't understand crypto still. And then two, it's that balance of like, is this a warning sign about the industry or is one bad exchange going to impact and place blame on the rest of the industry? And I'm curious just how you're thinking about that. 
I do think it's a lot wider than FTX for two reasons. The first being that FTX was so entangled with so many other projects that whether these other projects, you know, were doing something intentionally bad or not, many of them just held funds on FTX, so they're going to be affected. But secondly, I think it's much broader than FTX because their organizational structure actually mirrors a lot of organizational structures in crypto. Like if you look at the org charts, they're super complicated. You know, it's supposed to be this democratized thing where tokens are a mechanism to have democratized ownership. But really, at the end of the day, it's like the VCs who are holding the majority of the tokens on a lot of these projects. So there's a lot of centralization in this supposedly decentralized world of crypto. So this is really a big blow to like the consumer facing crypto product. And it kind of throws a wrench in the whole idea that like crypto is going to reach this mass adoption because if the everyday average people don't trust it then like how are you going to get there what would you tell someone listening who's like flirted with a tiny bit of crypto investing around how to contextualize the ftx scandal and their investment i don't get financial advice, but I will give you my vibe check on this, which is that I actually think if you have your funds in any sort of centralized exchange, they're probably not safe. I would personally not feel super comfortable holding my assets anywhere, really. I would personally say like being a, a bit more careful is the way to go because no one saw this coming with FTX. Do you think this kind of crazy collapse is going to be a catalyst to try to impose some regulation on the industry. And I guess what does crypto regulation even mean? It almost seems like an oxymoron. Well, the regulators are still trying to figure that out, especially in the U.S. Like, do our senators even understand? (laughs) Like, they don't understand Google. Look, I I would love to like watch the, you know, the Senate hearings as they try to sort this out and like question these crypto, you know, experts (laughs) and talk about it. But regulators really don't know what's going on here either. And the technology has evolved and updated so quick that it's been hard to keep up with. But at the same time, a lot of the issues and vulnerabilities we see in crypto are like the same exact things that we already went through with the financial system once. I really like Matt Levine from Bloomberg. I read his column all the time. And he made an observation a couple of months ago that he was like, watching crypto evolve is just like watching the traditional financial system evolve from scratch. And eventually all of the same regulations that were imposed in traditional finance, I do believe will be imposed on crypto. But the only thing is that there's a chance that like it becomes so unpopular that it's not even worth, you know, getting in the weeds to regulate it. But certainly if user demand continues to be there, I think regulators have a huge incentive to come in and at least try to do something. So you cover the industry like you are in this day in and day out. Please help. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How are you thinking about where it's going from here and what FTX has done to crypto? I think that the one like observation I have coming out of all of this is that this whole like cycle, like I started reporting on crypto right as the bull market was beginning to really come into its own. So I joined at like a moment of a lot of optimism. And, you know, I had heard about crypto and blockchain before and then just wanted to dive further into it because, you know, you saw all of these traditional banks that had once been extremely skeptical about crypto now saying like, let's get on board, let's do this. But it's absolutely insane to me how this entire thing was built on basically hype alone. It's not every single project in crypto that's total BS, but like most of it was just a hype cycle. And it's like if you get enough important people to hype up the same thing, then it turns into the self-fulfilling prophecy. And in a way, maybe we all should have seen this coming to some extent. Well, Tom Brady maybe didn't. You know what? I'm in. Let's call everyone. Hang on a minute. 
But Anita, thank you so, so much. Thank you. The Men's World Cup kicks off this weekend. And before players even hit the field, there's already drama on the sidelines. The host country, Qatar, has been in hot water leading up to the cup. And from accusations of bribery to human rights violations, there's a lot to get into. We'll break down why fans, critics, and even Dua Lipa are giving FIFA a red card all in 60 seconds. Back in 2010, soccer's governing body called FIFA announced Qatar would host the 2022 Men's World Cup, a move that the soccer world said was offsides. I was shocked and disappointed. I think that this decision today is going to rumble on for a very long time. Usually, a country is selected to host the tournament because it's involved with the soccer community. But compared to the other countries bidding to host, like Australia, Japan, the US, and South Korea, Qatar basically had no soccer culture. After Qatar won the bidding war, rumors of a bribe started swirling. And in April 2020, the US Department of Justice accused top FIFA officials of taking money to vote for Qatar. Since then, multiple officials across FIFA and related media companies have been charged for taking bribes related to that bid. Besides bribery, there was another red flag with Qatar. The country had no infrastructure in the host city of Doha that could support such a massive event. Qatar's plan was to build nearly everything, including highway expansions, hotels, and seven new stadiums. To construct all of these new projects, Qatar employed foreign laborers, and human rights groups documented the harsh working conditions and abuse of workers on World Cup job sites. The International Labor Organization said 50 foreign workers died working on World Cup projects in 2020. More than 500 other workers were seriously injured, and almost 40,000 more reported less serious injuries. Critics say, unfortunately, this wasn't surprising because Qatar has a sketchy history with forced labor, something FIFA was actually aware of going into the games. Finally, fans aren't only concerned about worker safety leading up to the tournament. LGBTQ fans are worried that Qatar's strict anti-LGBTQ policies will put them at risk attending the events because the country has laws that criminalize same-sex relations and, according to one report, has forced conversion therapy for detained trans women in the country. But apparently, during the World Cup, Qatari police have been instructed to use soft policing, meaning if police see people waving rainbow flags or kissing in public, they should exercise restraint and try to turn a blind eye. The tournament is set to get underway this weekend, but it seems like a lot of fans will be boycotting the games because of these controversies. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. It's no secret that the way we work has changed a lot over the last few years. For us at The Skim, it's meant adapting to a hybrid setup and finding new ways to communicate across different teams and time zones. 
Through it all, Slack has helped us preserve our company culture and get stuff done. We think of it as our digital HQ, and we've teamed up with Slack to give you a peek behind the curtain by sharing real stories from real Skim HQers about some of our most used and most loved Slack channels. We've already covered our skimmer feedback, people leaders, and headline workshop channels. But Slack isn't just where we work. It's also where work meets life and where we connect as people, not just coworkers. We have a reads channel where we talk about books and swap recommendations. We have a photo stream channel where we share pictures of our coworkers in the wild and a channel where we obsess over the latest celebrity gossip. That one's just called Kardashians, which probably tells you where our reality TV loyalties lie. But today, we're talking about one place where parents at The Skim meet to share recommendations, advice, and adorable pictures. And we have a very special guest here to talk about it, Lou's mom, AKA Jana Polak. She's our senior manager of creative strategy. Huddle, activate. Hey, Jana, thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to talk to you. Can you first just tell me a little bit about the Parent Life channel? I was invited to join it as soon as I got back from maternity leave and immediately found it to be a place where we can all bring this other part of our identities that we're somewhat putting aside from nine to five. It's like I leave my son with the nanny share and I come to work and I try to be present, but it's a part of you that's really hard to turn off. And so to just have this little outlet all day is really, really important and meaningful. And I think just also makes me feel like I work at a place where I don't have to hide it and compartmentalize it and say like, no, no, I'm like so professional. I'm like here for the meeting and (laughs) I'm not stressed out that my son woke up with a fever. It's nice to work in a place where I can feel like I can bring my whole self to work that way. The parenting channel, just that it exists and that it was created by our people team, makes me feel supported as a parent in my working life. Did you feel like it made coming back from leave easier? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the first things I asked was about a schedule for pumping and people had good advice for like adding it to your calendar because I kind of just felt so overwhelmed when I got back. And it was nice to have these people who had been there and had advice. Even if we'd been in the office, I wouldn't have wanted to go up to someone who I happened to know was a parent and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, when do you pump? You know, I think it would have felt awkward. And having this built in place where I knew people had joined because they were open to answering questions like that and wanted to have that community made it really easy to start those conversations. I remember one day, actually, this really struck me because it was somebody very high up in the company. I think she's an SVP and she posted randomly at like 2.30, really missing my kid today. So I'm sending you guys a picture just so that we can all look at him and you can tell me he's cute because I'm missing him Mm -hmm. right now. And it made me like remember that all of these moms work here who are doing their job and working really hard and at really high levels and going through the same thing of being like, oh God, I I miss him and what is he doing and how is he doing? So I think just knowing that there are other women at the skim who have had that same experience or are having that same experience just gives me space to have that too, which feels really valuable. And I want to get Slack specific for a second. Are there certain features that you use in this channel or that you appreciate the use of? This actually isn't in this channel, but it is parenting related and Slack related. My team has created a emoji of my son. 
um, of him. There was this really funny picture that I shared right when I came back from maternity leave of him hanging on a swing with this really funny look on his face. It's called Baby Lou, B-E-B-E Lou, Baby Lou. Um, And it's in there. It's for anyone of the company to use if you feel like responding with a Baby Lou. It's just like so fun that they could do that. Oh my God, I found it. (laughs) Yeah. But it was like, it's so cool that that feature exists and that kind of brought Lou into my work life in a really fun way. We love Lou. Jana, thank you so, so much. We hope you've enjoyed hearing more about how we use Slack as our digital HQ here at The Skim. Maybe we'll catch you in a huddle sometime soon. We're just one week out from the start of holiday season. And for a lot of us, That means going to family gatherings full of awkward and sometimes stressful conversations. From your well-meaning grandparents to that distant cousin you haven't seen in years. Between people constantly asking, So, how'd you two meet? And, Is there a reason that you're not drinking? Sometimes these dinners make us feel like we're playing defense. But it doesn't have to be that way. We wanted to learn how to set stronger and stricter boundaries with loved ones to protect our mental health and keep the awkwardness to a minimum. So we spoke to Nedra Tawab, therapist and author of Set Boundaries, Find Peace. We have to think about the other person in this relationship. And there are times when your grandmother may always say something about your weight because she has an issue with her weight or in her culture, it's not a bad thing. And so she may continuously say something and you may have to continuously say to her, grandma, please don't say that about my weight. I don't know if it's always like, oh, you know what? She said it again. I'm done with grandma. That is one way to respond to it. And I think another way is sometimes they accept that certain people can't understand certain boundaries and you have to decide, is it a loving relationship? Is it a respectful relationship? Is it a mutually beneficial relationship? And how important the relationship is to you. Tawab also suggests thinking about the topics you want to draw boundaries around. So by the time that you're at the Thanksgiving table, you know how to respond go into it kind of with a solid plan of what we can and can't talk about. And when those topics come up, you know, having a a way to respond and not be caught off guard can be a really helpful way to savor the moment and to not feel offended, but just anticipate that, you know, maybe every holiday they do talk about certain things. And this is what I can say when it happens to sort of get away from that conversation that I'm feeling uncomfortable with having. We can let people know that certain things will cause an argument. And the way that I suggest people do that is to acknowledge that, that we really disagree on this and I don't want to argue over dinner. And by the way, it's never too late to start setting boundaries with your family members. So even if you let it slide last year when your cousin sized up your job, you can tell them it's off limits now. So now that we know how to assess who to set boundaries with, how to identify what topics are off limits to us, and how to respond to those moments, 
Let's run through a few quick scenarios that come up at a lot of people's dinner tables. First up, what to say if you aren't actually spending the holidays with your family this year. Tawab told us, in order to manage expectations, Start early. I think far too often people wait until the last minute because they're really afraid to tell their parents. So if you know that you are planning to go to your partners, to your friends, or going on a solo vacation, just say something really simple like, this Thanksgiving, this is my plan. You're not asking for permission to go to your partner's family's house. You're just going. Next, let's talk about when people get nosy about issues like fertility or egg freezing. Think about the person's intentions when telling you this. You can let people know when information is useful and when it's not. You can certainly let them know, thank you for this information and this is not something I'm ready to talk about yet. Or thank you for this information. Do you have a doctor in mind? Because sometimes it's just something you haven't thought of that you don't necessarily need to be offended by. It's just like, oh, okay, tell me more about this egg freezing situation. What do you know? And if you're worried that your finances might impact your holiday cheer, you can always say, I'm having a hard time financially this year and I can't purchase a lot of gifts, period. Or there's some other way that I would love to support you. Maybe this year I celebrate your birthday a little harder and get you a gift, but I can't get, you know, multiple gifts for folks on Christmas. And we want to end on a final note from Tawab, who's got an important reminder for us heading into the holidays. All the relationships we have as adults, they're optional. So if I want to be in a relationship with you, there are certain things that I might have to accept about you because I love so many other things about you. Sometimes we think it has to be a perfect relationship and it doesn't. We can have distant relationships. We can have relationships where we talk once a month and not once a day. That's all for us to determine based on how we can be in this relationship with a person and be mentally well. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Alicia Key. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast, It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.